Hey, this is Ed. Before we get started, I want to thank two brand new podcast supporters, Ken Wittekind and Madison Hilton. Thank you guys so much. Both Ken and Madison signed up to be Patreon supporters, which means they are supporting the podcast on a monthly basis through Patreon. I have that option. I also have one-time support options as well. You can check both of them out at mountainandpray.com slash support if you're interested. If you're not, keep listening for free. It's free. Always will be. I really appreciate your attention for an hour or hour and a half. That's very valuable in itself. Um, so thank you so much for that. For Patreon supporters, real quick announcement. I'm going to be sending out a monthly update later this weekend, and I've got two pretty exciting announcements in there. Uh, one about a event that will be happening this summer, and then one about another little project I'm working on. So that is for Patreon supporters. Everybody else will hear about it eventually, but I'm going to give a little sneak peek to those who have supported the podcast on a monthly basis. But seriously, big thanks to everybody for your support, for listening, for sharing it with your friends, for giving it reviews on iTunes. Can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Have a good weekend. Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work, has an interesting story, and loves the American West. My guest today is Lynn Nessifer. Lynn is a scholar, entrepreneur, and outdoor adventurer who's also a proud member of the Navajo Nation. Academically, Lynn holds a Ph.D. in engineering and public policy, and he's currently a professor of both Indian Studies and Public Policy at the University of Arizona. In business, he's the CEO of Natives Outdoors, a cutting-edge outdoor apparel company that uses its platform to advocate for the cultural empowerment of indigenous people. And to top it all off, Lynn is a committed mountaineer, backcountry skier, and rock climber, having ticked off countless impressive adventures throughout the West. It's clear that Lynn has accomplished a lot personally, but what's even more impressive is the positive ripple effect his work is having on the outdoor industry. By melding his professional expertise, personal interest, and cultural heritage, he's become one of the leading voices advocating for Native American representation in outdoor recreation and conservation. His work and personal story have been featured in big-time publications such as Outside and Alpinist, and he's recently delved into filmmaking with his newest film, Welcome to Guizhajé. As you'll hear, Lynn has a unique ability to educate and inspire, and his message is striking a chord with a large, engaged audience. As you'd expect from a guy as multifaceted as Lynn, he offers up a wealth of knowledge in our conversation. We talked about his Navajo heritage and discussed the unique history and culture of the Navajo tribe. We chatted about his recent film and discussed the impact of oil and gas development on native populations in areas such as Bears Ears and the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. We chatted about the need for mutual respect between the outdoor industry and indigenous groups, and Lynn explains two interesting case studies around rock climbing on sacred native lands. He gives an excellent overview of his company, Natives Outdoors, and he explains why he chose to start a business instead of starting a nonprofit. As usual, we discuss favorite books, films, and the best advice he ever received. 
Thanks so much to Lynn for carving out time to chat. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. When you meet somebody for the first time, never met them, and you introduce yourself and they ask you that question, what do you do? What is your answer to that question? Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I guess it depends on who I'm talking to. And like, I mean, it mainly depends on who I'm talking to. Sure. Um, You know, it's funny. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, let me I can give you the list of things that I do. I I'm an assistant professor at the University of Arizona. Um, I have joint appointments in the Department of American Indian Studies and the Udall Center for Studies and Public Policy. And so my research focus is on indigenous people and natural resource management. And so uh, I'm trained as an engineer um, uh, in mechanical engineering and then also my doctorate's in engineering and public policy, which is one degree. Um, the joke was is that they beat the social science into the engineers. Uh, um, uh, my work, my work in Indian country, like there's such a huge component of social cultural values that you know, working on technical issues, I have to um, have a good understanding of of those dynamics as well um, in order to create effective policy. So that's my U of A hat. Um, I started an apparel company, and now we're kind of morphing into a media company as well called Natives Outdoors. Um, um, we've done uh, outdoor apparel and products, and then also done media and storytelling. Um, and so that's been that. That was my role. That kind of was the entry point into the outdoor industry. Um, and then I'm also on the board for the Honold Foundation and the American Alpine Club. That yeah, and we only have an hour to talk, and that's like ten hours worth of conversation there. <laughs> Yeah, I guess maybe the the easiest way to dive into this is just with you personally and and how you ended up on this path that has led you to do so much cool stuff. And um, I I mean, I guess we just start. Where did you grow up? Um, I grew up between uh, Lawrence, Kansas and um, Saley, Arizona. My my dad um, is from Detroit and my mom is from Northern Arizona and they met at a tribal college called Haskell in Lawrence. Um, and then I later moved to, uh, back to Salie when I was about 10 or 11. Um, so, you know, basically the, the broader Southwest, I've, I've moved around quite a bit, um, around like New Mexico, Arizona area, but I think of the four corners as home. Yeah. And so can you talk a little bit about your heritage and the tribe you belong to? Yeah. So my mom is Navajo and um, uh, they're from a place called Red Valley, Arizona. And um, yeah, I mean, it's been, I would say, probably the most formative part of um, my identity and like how I spend time outdoors was always from a ceremonial perspective first. Mm-hmm or sheep herding actually. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and my dad is from Detroit and he was, uh, he comes from a Romanian and Scottish family, like on each side, they're second generation American. And, um, so that identity for my father is that he, when he was a young man after college, he just wanted to get the hell out of Detroit. So he, um, he ended up moving to, um, San Diego and be substitute taught and then lived in a van for a little bit and surfed. Oh, that's Um, cool. (laughs) Um, 
you know, he really he and then he ended up uh, spending some time in Liberia in the Peace Corps. Um, so he was he was always um, both of my parents were always kind of willing to um, uh, teach me how to rough it. Sure, sure. <laughs> and, and, you know, I think that was something that I really valued. But it was from, you know, very two very different perspectives of one being like kind of a ranching sort of a, I would say kind of ranching, um, experience, not, not fully, but, um, and also a recreation site. So it kind of had an opportunity one to, um, be connected to the land through, you know, the Navajo traditional ceremonies, um, hunting that my uncles did, um, ranching and, um, and then also just getting outside and having fun too. Yeah, well, when you hear that, it makes perfect sense, kind of where you've where you've landed uh, or where you've earned to be through a lot of really really hard work. Um, could you just talk a little bit about the the history of the Navajo tribe and the heritage? Because I've I've read a, a decent amount about Navajos and and yeah. I'm not at all a scholar in Native American history, but from what I know, they are an extremely unique tribe for a lot of different reasons. And um, I was wondering if you could just kind of give an overview of yeah. the tribe, the the territory that they um, that they've historically inhabited, and just kind of talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the Navajo people are. I mean, what really unites us is a language, because um, historically we've been um, a mix of a lot of different people um, and that's reflecting in our clan system so uh, there was a lot of um, intermarriage and um, uh, contact with the tribes of the southwest and so in, in our clan system that's that's reflected is that when people introduce themselves they introduce their four clans um, and they all are of different people from across the southwest and I think that kind of speaks to sort of the the amount of difference within the tribe. Like there's a wide range of experience there and perspectives. Um, Navajo Nation is the largest tribe in the U.S. by population and landmass. It's about the size of West Virginia in terms of landmass. And I think there's about 350, 400,000 people, Navajos enrolled. Uh, So, and most live off the reservation. I think it's like about half live off. It's like half and half. Um, and so most folks live in places like Phoenix, Tucson, Albuquerque, um, Denver, for example. So, um, but our, when I grew up, my grandfather talked about how the original Navajos that came to the Southwest, um, they're, you know, what modern linguists today call Athabascan speakers and, um, he always said that those four original clans, they were really tall, like they were very tall people. Um, and that was, that was kind of the, the remnant or the, the ways in which you can see that play out today is that a lot of the intermarriage with the Pueblos, like, uh, you see some tall Navajos, you see some short Navajos, but he always said that the original Athabascans that came from the North were pretty tall. And, um, we have a bunch of language relatives up North in Alaska mm-hmm. and my, it was funny because I, I was just up in Fort Yukon, Alaska, making a film, and it's a Gwich'in community, and they're Athabas- from the same language family, the Athabascans, and um, <laughs> people are tall there. <laughs> you oh, know? really? 
Yeah, totally. It was like kind of one of those things of like hearing that from my grandfather and then going up to there and I was like, oh, wow, like they actually are tall. <laughs> That's really cool. And I just watched that film last night and man, it is so good. You directed that? Um, I was a co-director and uh, my buddy Greg Balkin um, did the filming. Okay. Um, but, but we worked on the story and um, sort of the narrative arc on pretty, pretty in depth. So I love that. And we're just going to kind of jump all over the place, but can you talk a little bit about that film? Because, and I'll, I'll embed it on the web, on the webpage so people can be sure to, to find it. But I thought it was so interesting. Just one of the things that stuck out was how you said, you know, you're, you're from Arizona, but you go as far North as you can possibly go in North America. And you feel like you're at home for a lot of different reasons, the sights, the smells, the, the people. Can you just give an overview of that film? Cause I, I loved it. Yeah, the film is called Welcome to Guichiage. Um We made it with the support of the Wilderness Society in Patagonia. Um, we just wrapped up a 12-city tour a couple weeks ago, so I'm really happy to be home. Nice. <laughs> um, but the, 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 the film is uh, it's about 12 minutes, on, and it focuses on the indigenous perspectives of the Arctic Refuge and how that particular fight is no different than what's happened, like say in Bears Ears or Standing Rock or um, uh, other places where indigenous people have been leading an environmental fight. It just happens to be really far away in the most remote part of this country. Um, and uh, so, what the in large part the film was to you know use my lens as sort of like an Anthony Bourdain sort of character to go and you know go and see Fort Yukon, um, and experience it in the way that I guess I have before. Um, I used to work in with, with, um, these communities when I was at the department of energy. And so I had a number of contacts already there and, um, I was well aware of the issues and challenges around the refuge and, um, the importance. And so, you know, that was, that was really cool to be able to, um, share a little bit about that experience of having worked there a bit is that the more time I spent there, you know, it's, it just feels like a, um, uh, very densely, you know, spruce forested shiprock or nice. something. <laughs> um, but you know, the part of the, part of the thing that makes that so similar is that the languages are very similar. You know, there's words that we have that are the same, very, like almost the same. And you could, you saw that in the movie, um, where I'm talking with that woman and we were comparing different words, like one, one that we compared was fish. And, um, yeah, it was just, it was just really awesome. And I think the, the, the thing that felt most like home was just, um, the people. I think one of the things that was just really, um, you know, having worked in the community before and built relationships, it was just, it, it almost felt like going home in a way because the generosity of people, like we would go, um, before we would interview people, we'd sit down and we ate so much moose, uh, <laughs> people were just offering us, uh, you know, meal after meal after meal. And it was great. And I think that was one of the cool things that came away from that film is like, we didn't just make a film, but we also made lifelong friendships and I'll hopefully, um, our hope is to make a little bit longer film, um, about the refuge using this as a basis. Well, I loved it. And one of the one of the main reasons I loved it is because I feel like with both Bears Ears and with the Arctic Wildlife Refuge, you know, there's endless media about 
why these places need to be saved, but I'd say 99.9% of it focuses on the the natural beauty and the wildlife and the stuff that makes it fun for recreation. But what I liked about yours was it, it focused on the human impact. And totally. if, you know, with these, with the, you know, the, the human impact of people who have been there longer, you know, just as long as, as pretty much any living creature. And, and so can you just talk a little bit about the, the human impact of oil and gas development in these beautiful landscapes? Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of the focus on the refuge, um, for quite a while was on like kind of plants and animals and landscapes and not so much people. Um, and, uh, one of the things that has been, you know, in introducing this topic to a new generation of younger folks that maybe not, might not have heard of the refuge, which is actually pretty common. Um, a lot of young folks have never heard of bears ears over the refuge, but, um, one of the things that I was finding is that um, in engaging these young folks on um, why the refuge matters, uh, we found that um, focusing on the issue, uh, what's happening there as a human human rights issue rather than a um, environmental issue, like well, a human rights issue with a significant environmental component, mm-hmm. uh, was something that drew a lot of young people in and sort of in learning about what's happening there and also gain, um, um, keeping them interested in this particular topic. And I think that's been an interesting sort of, um, reframing of the Arctic refuge that we've been trying to, um, advocate for. And in large part, this has been coming at the direction of, um, Bernadette Dementev, who is in the film. She's the director of the Gwich'in steering committee. Um, and, you know, her language around that has been very helpful and informative for us because, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, these landscapes are, um, you know, in many ways, we're all part of it. And uh, we're writing the next chapter of, you know, the 40,000 years of history in the case of the Arctic Refuge. But I think one of the things that's very unique about indigenous people is that many of these landscapes, our cultures and these landscapes have evolved, uh, together over this period of time. Um, you know, I think for the Gwich'in, their identity and culture is tied to the caribou. Um, and rightfully so. I mean, they've been, um, living alongside these animals for 40,000 years. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they have a very deep relationship with this place and, and, or with this with this animal in the place that um, these animals then go and calve, and so for them, protecting the caribou and protecting this place in many ways is protecting their identity. Um, and I and I can relate to that a lot being in Bears Ears because uh, my original Navajo clan, Tachitni, is actually a Hopi clan or an ancestral Puebloan clan. And so my roots and lineage in the Southwest go back much further than, say, the original Navajo um, folks that came from the North. Um, And so I kind of, I think in learning that about myself and then seeing what's happening up there, it's also this, um, I I think it's, it's trying to give folks that, you know, maybe have not encountered that sort of identity or connection to land as like kind of a little window and being able to see why this is an important thing. And I was just, um, you know, in, in going back and talking about 
the connection of culture and landscape. You know, many of these landscapes in which Native people live, um, you know, they've been tended and managed so much so that like they can't like they can't exist without that sort of intervention anymore. I mean, one example is Yosemite. Mm-hmm. Um, the Awani people used to burn those valleys in large part to um, uh, maintain an oak grove or the oak trees down there, which was their primary primary food staple um, was the acorns. And so they would, they would selectively burn these valleys and, you know, fire was a major component of the ecosystems there. They just basically used that particular regime to support their way of life. And now, um, when Muir first went there, he was in awe about how much, how park-like this place looked. Um, but in large part, it was because of very active management by native people in that valley. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's been kind of an interesting um, opportunity to, I think, to give people an insight about, you know, why these cultural identities matter. Because I think one of the things I think the value that can be derived from that is if people have a landscape or a place that they feel intimately connected to, I think it gives a much more of a chance um, when we're talking about, you know, making strides in conservation. I agree completely with that. And yeah. I, I think the point you made about the, the human rights, um, the, the cro- this kind of intersection of human rights and conservation is really interesting because my wife used to work at a, a international development group that would focus on that intersection around the world. And what I found was so interesting about it was like they'd be in Brazil or somewhere where an indigenous tribe was being forced out of a valley so some big company could build a dam and flood their homelands. And, you know, these people are not environmentalists because, you know, they they love recreating outdoors or have some love for the the landscape as much as they're they're trying to protect their family and their their land and their home ground and they don't have a choice but to fight against these forces. And I think it seems, I think at least in the U.S., that environmentalism could has this reputation of being a, a somewhat privileged point of view. But the, I think the, where it, the rubber hits the road, like up there in Alaska, Bears Ears, around the huh? world, it's it's a matter of life and death. It's not some feel-good kind of thing. Do, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it totally does. And I mean, you can look at that like in the roots of how conservation the movement started in this country. It was not meant to be uh, a preservation of peoples and cultures. And I think that's just what we've inherited. And um, I think in in, in thinking about where do we go next, I almost feel like that's kind of where the opportunity lies. Um, One of the, um, a a little story, a little vignette that um, I was told, um, there's a pro climber, Nat Geo photographer named Renan Osterk that I actually had um, present in my class. Um, and, uh, he's, he was historically been, you know, this pretty renowned climber and he's made the transition to do more, um, uh, filmmaking and cultural based work. And so he's done a lot of work with, um, um, indigenous communities across the U S on food sovereignty and food security. Um, but he, he was talking about the, um, I think it was the Yurok tribe in Northern California and how, you know, in, in talking about this connected identity to this place, they, um, they, with the 
I think it was the placenta or something like that when at the afterbirth of a child once, uh, sorry, no, it was umbilical cord. Um, they bury the umbilical cord and the placenta in next to a, uh, with a new redwood tree and for a person. And so their connection to the land is one, the person, but also this tree and the person and the tree have to be taken together or taken care of together because if one dies, the other does too. Um, but you know, the, effectively there's been an entire redwood forest that's been planted because of this. Um, and in a very deep way, I mean, literally the DNA, um, is directly <laughs> connected. I mean, it's, it's directly in these trees and like the, their sort of sense of place and being is, is very much that. And they, I mean, you can look back 10,000 years and that's, their connection in this place, which is long and deep rooted. Um, um, and that was such a cool little story of that, you know, even here in the United States that there's that identity as well. But the one thing that sticks with me in my research is, um, there's a, there was a figure I read that said that indigenous people represent less than 5% of the world's population. However, the land's that we live on and inhabit contain 80% of the world's biodiversity. Wow. And, you know, I look at that and I'm like, well, that's not surprising um, because so much of our societies have been grounded in this identity of connection to place as if it were ourselves, right? So like the land is us sort of thing. Um, And that makes sense that that's the case, but I think that's kind of what – I think in the past hundred years of looking what's happened in this country is that 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 particular narrative hasn't been a part of the discussion um, because, you know, indigenous people have been living on this particular in this country for thousands and thousands of years. But it's because of their stewardship that we have all the all these places that we enjoy today. They, I mean, we didn't screw it up. Um, but I think we're now entering a different place where, you know, we have a different land management regime regime with public lands. Etc. And I think um, I think there is one an opportunity to build upon that long legacy um, of history, and that we, as this country, are inheriting, you know, something that is to be proud of. And uh, I think that's a I think that's an immense opportunity to kind of shift this conversation. I mean, the discussion of conservation to also include people as well. Yeah, I I completely agree with you, and I, I feel like. You know, almost everybody who loves the outdoors, loves outdoor recreation would agree with that. But for some reason, there's this gap and, and, and people, this knowledge gap and people, it just doesn't even cross their mind. And so that's that's what I love about your filmmaking. And then I think this is a good time to talk about Natives Outdoors because that's it seems that that is one of the one of the um, goals of your business is this education and, and help, you know, helping people specifically the outdoor industry understand the real history of these places where we love to recreate. So can you talk a little bit about how you came up with the idea for natives outdoors and, and kind of where things stand with that? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was originally it started as an Instagram account and then I started, I just saw a lot of opportunity one to, um, I guess taking a further step back, you know, for me, I did a lot of cycling and biking and hiking, um, when I was younger and I just found 
that it was just such a great way to, you know, the, to connect with the landscape um, and to move through it slowly instead of blasting through it on a highway or something. And it was a really grounding experience. Um, and it was also a way that, you know, being far from the res, it was a way that I could connect with landscapes that were different. And I think outdoor rec gave me a tool to like, um, be able to connect with very different landscapes, whether it was, you know, when I was living in Pittsburgh and going to school there, um, it was a tool, it was a tool to keep this groundedness and connection to land. And I didn't really realize that what that's what was happening until years later, um, but the other piece that I saw is, um, you know, for a lot of tribes, there's um, a lot of discussion about how to have sustainable economies and to and how to um, um, address issues of public health. And I, I think that outdoor rec is just a vehicle for one um, to address those things, but also an opportunity as cultural education as well. That's kind of the original framing, but the other pieces that I think um, I began seeing with a lot of the folks I went outside with is that there was more of a curiosity of the history of these places. Um, I remember on a few occasions I went um, with some friends uh, doing some backcountry uh, skiing in Rocky Mountain National Park, and we came upon a like a, a hunt hunting blind that was, it was just a, it looked like a pile of rocks but it was it was made by the original Arapaho um inhabitants oh, you know wow. and it was still you know we could and I I saw it I had seen it before and I had talked to a ranger and they they told me what it was and um you know just to have that sort of opportunity to be able to like go out in a landscape and see that I mean it was it, I saw it as an opportunity to educate um and, you know, that's been a, I think there's a, there's a desire for that, I think, among a lot of people, because the education that we receive about indigenous people in this country is not very good. <laughs> <laughs> that's an understatement. <laughs> and uh, I don't like to call it remedial education, but I think, <laughs> you know, I had to, I, I had to go to grad school, too, to learn this stuff as well, even as a native person. Um, but I think one of the things is that, um I, I think it's an incredible classroom. You know, I think a lot of, uh, well, I mean, organizations like Outward Bound and Knowles look at the outdoors as a classroom, but so do indigenous people. Like our cultural traditions, our language, everything is taught through the outdoors because that's where it's grounded. Um, and so I just thought I saw this as an, a really cool opportunity to engage with the broader public, but also engage with our communities as well and looking at outdoor rec as this opportunity and vehicle. Um, but the other piece of why we started selling um, outdoor products is because um, <laughs> the main reason is that I didn't want to be treated as a charity case. Mm -hmm. uh, and so um, we, you know, looking at the long, um, uh, traditions of, of art and talent in native communities. I just thought this is an amazing, amazing pathway for young native designers and entrepreneurs and athletes to engage in an industry that I think in many ways addresses some of these challenges of public health and um, sustainable economies. And so we created outdoor products. We're, we're actually ramping up this year, um, and doing some more and 
you know, in a way it was, it's also to engage this larger industry that, um, you know, is basically the vehicle in which a lot of people get outdoors. Granted, like I'm kind of, I'm of the belief that you don't need the fanciest stuff to go outside. And I think, I think sometimes it's a little, uh, you know, I think there's a little bit too much of a commodification of the outdoors, but I think our voice in that space of the outdoor industry is, you know, an important one because, um, you know, all of these landscapes where this recreation is happening on has been stewarded by native people. So, um, I think to add a story in the products that we sell and then also a story in the brand that we have is pretty much written in the landscape. And I think that's been a, um, a very, uh, a very easy talking point. And I think the media is just simply an extension of that. And that's been a lot of fun to, um, connect those two connect story to product, et cetera. And so, um, and the last piece is that we we use our products to um, support organizations that uh, deal with language and culture revitalization and also outdoor access on native in native communities as well. That's great. And the the thing that sticks out to me that I think is so smart about it is that you're a for profit company because I, I work in private land conservation and for every you know, for every one hour I spend doing an actual conservation deal, I probably spend three hours raising money. Uh-huh. And I mean, and that's just the reality of it. And so when, if, when you can cut that out, it almost reminds me of a, you know, how, what Patagonia has chosen to do with their business is that, you know, they, it's this cash generating machine and then they're able to use the cash as they see fit. I mean, I think yours is obviously a lot heavier on the, the, the impact side of things, mm-hmm. but it's, I think it's such a smart model and it, you're not beholden to anybody except yourself, which is, which is pretty damn cool. Yeah. And I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to, I'm glad you brought up Patagonia because in large part that was the, we've, we've taken their model and kind of honed it a little bit more on native communities because uh, it's effective. And so when you, you know, you're making waves in the outdoor industry and you're, you know, you're written up in all these different publications and making films. And so how have you been received and how has your message been received by the outdoor industry? I mean, is it, is it soaking in? Um, yeah, I'd say so. I mean, I I mean, it, it just, uh, yeah, I think so. I did a piece in the Alpinist, um, a couple issues ago. Um, about one of our sacred peaks, which is um, called Cisnogene. And it's also, I mean, in English, it's called Blanca Peak. It's in the San Luis Valley. Oh, yeah. Big 14er, you know, big mountain. Um, and I, it was from a story that I, had, I went with a pro athlete named Brody Levin, and we attempted to climb it in the middle of January. And it was quite the, uh, quite the epic. But um, <laughs> we, we actually didn't make it up. We had to bail. But um it, but the the main part of that story was trying to connect like that his sort of outdoor experience of being a ski mountaineer to these indigenous stories of the land. And that's been um, I think one of the things that's been really cool is connecting with a lot of these pro athletes and, and giving them the experiences that can help them articulate and um, uh, understand the importance of these areas and the indigenous stories behind them. And, you know, at the end of the day, like native people are such a, we're such a small percentage of the population, but, um, I've found a lot of, um, success in, um, you know, having these experiences be very meaningful for like outdoor athletes and, um, folks with a lot of reach because, 
if they're talking and saying and you know bringing these issues up or you know advocating for native people it really makes a big difference and i think at the end of the day the outdoor industry and um you know one of the, i've been a huge advocate is that i think that the outdoor industry and tribes together um can be a very formidable force for conservation and climate change issues um uh in one part is because tribes are sovereign nations and they have um, very unique legal standing when it comes to public lands management and also just relationships with the U.S. government that the outdoor industry doesn't have. But I think the outdoor industry, one, is a big industry in terms of dollars, uh, but also just in terms of social capital. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of influence that can be made by visually stunning images or stories, etc. And I think that in the at the end of the day is. The larger goal is to make sure that, you know, native people in these industries work together because, um, you know, I, I don't there there. It seems like until recently, there's been a larger coalition of folks fighting against efforts to address climate change and also land conservation. And I think this is the alignment that I think is important for um, us as a country moving forward. And so. Um, I, in talking about that, there's a political reason. There's an economic piece of this as well. Um, one of the models that I pulled upon was um, the EU, for example, the European Union. Um, a big reason why that they pushed for economic integration of all the different countries was in part to reduce conflict. Um, because pre-EU, Europe was a pretty war-torn, war-riddled country. Yeah. But um, when you have economic connections and um, uh, there, it can reduce that. It kind of reduces the chances of conflict. And native people in outdoor recreation have not always been on the same side of the issue on a lot of things. And I, the most salient example is with climbers and tribes. There's been a ton of conflict, and I think to it's almost to each to each his detriment. And I think there's an opportunity to flip that script and work more collaboratively. And I really think that's what happened with Bears Ears. Um, climbers and tribes came together in a way that was very important. And um, I think moving forward and looking about, you know, looking at the Arctic Refuge, um, it's simply building upon that model. Could you talk a little bit about Devil's Tower up in Wyoming and how that has been a case study for cooperation and mutual respect among climbers and tribes? Yeah, I don't. I don't think Devil's Tower is the best example for collaboration. But what is what, what is the best? What What would you say I, is Bears Ears? I would say Bears Ears is. I mean, the I, I can talk about Devil's Tower. I mean, it was. Um, well, maybe you know, compare that, them as to which one. Yeah. Why Devil? Where Devil's Towers fell short? I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, in Devil's Tower, there's. You're right. There has been a lot of important work um, by groups like the Access Fund to. Um, respect a voluntary climbing ban in the month of June, which has, you know, greatly, you know, dropped, um, a sense during that month. Um, I think the, the challenge with devil's tower bears lodge is that it was a monument that was not, um, it was the first national monument, of course, but it was a monument that, um, that tribes did not advocate for mm -hmm. um, and had historically, you know, they had the wounds are pretty real in terms of the removal that happened there. And I think some of those 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 histories and traumas plays out with 
the tribes and interacting with these climbers because the tribes in a real way feel very dispossessed from that landscape and unable to influence its management because there's no real structure in the management plan that allows for tribes to have equal footing. And, you know, there's still climbing guides today that, you know, I watched a movie about one of them that still takes people up and and talks about sort of his right to do this. And I think I feel (laughs) I just I feel kind of sad for that person because it's incredibly ignorant of the history. Um, And there's there's a lot of those politics flying around Devil's Tower. And but I think. Speaking about another national monument like Bears Ears, the reason why it was different is that this was a national monument that was created and proposed by five tribes. And the original um, uh, monument designation would was effectively going down the path of a co-management um, regime with the U.S. government and uh, the intertribal coalition. Um, and that would have not been a precedent. It would have been a precedent in terms of the size because this was um, – you know, five tribes, the five tribes that came together, not all of them um, have been friends, but they saw the um, importance of working collectively, but also exerting their sovereignty off tribal lands to leverage some of these laws and um, these uh, recognition that they have with the federal government that, say, the outdoor industry doesn't have. And I think that was particularly powerful because um, Bears Ears, in a large part, I think sets an important precedent of how we look at um, managing national parks is that in this case, the tribes would be, have an equal seat at the table, um, in terms of management decisions as well. And I think that was, that was one of the most powerful pieces of that. But the other was that, um, there was a lot of work being done between climbers and tribes on that particular issue to ensure that climbing and other recreation opportunities were protected as well in the monument. And, um, you know, I think for, uh, many tribes, in, for example, in back in Devil's Tower, the idea of climbing is pretty dis- uh, uh, detestable in some people's eyes. But in Bears Ears, there's some of that as well. But one of the things that um, really seemed to thread the needle on making this work is, you know, talking about climbers as stewards and like also being the eyes and ears on the ground as well. And that seemed to bridge the divide a little bit more. And I think that's where I think it's an, it's an important um, milestone, I think in terms of thinking about uh, land management going forward. See, I love hearing that explanation because that, I mean, that's a perfect example of, you know, I'm very curious, you know, very engaged, feel like I understand a lot of stuff. And I, had I didn't have the full story on on Devil's mm. Tower and Bears Ears, and I think that's and now I do, and so I mean yeah. I think that and and that's you know obviously it's, it's one person than everybody listening, but that's just a perfect example of the importance of just having these discussions mm-hmm. and getting this information out there because people want it, they want to know the the true story, and mm-hmm. so I just as you do all day long, it just reinforces the importance of, of the work you're doing. So here's, here's a kind of a random question, but I'm sure everybody is wondering at this point, how the hell do you do all this stuff? How do you, do you have like 35 hours in the day? (laughs) I don't understand how you manage to juggle so many balls at once. What, what's your secret? I do a lot of time management. I mean, you must. Yeah. I mean, I do have, (laughs) I have, I kind of fell off the bandwagon this past week, but <laughs> you need a break, man. You, yeah. <laughs> it's okay to have a break. But I mean, just, I, I also have, you know, with the natives outdoors stuff, we have, um, 
uh, eight folks, eight athletes actually that we work with. And, you know, mainly I've been, um, punting a lot of different little projects their way or, um, tasking them with different things. And they're an amazing group of folks. Um, we have, um, people from uh, a Navajo guy that lives in a van in a new, you know, for transit on the res and he's a graphics, hard graphics designer, um, to, um, a pro climber, um, named Aaron Mike, he's climbing 513, 514. Wow. Um, and then also, a, a Lakota guy, that's a free skier that we just brought on. And so, you know, we have a lot of talent on the, uh, sports side, but also, um, we also have a number of folks that are incredibly talented on other pieces as well. And so, you know, they're a, they're a huge part of, what makes this go and the other, you know, in terms of the, uh, the, the apparel side, my mom is the warehouse and fulfillment center. Oh, really? (laughs) She's she's helping and, you know, we're paying contract. And so it's been fun to work with her and she's like very good at what she does too. So it's been fun to, um, you know, in, in a lot of ways, I think a lot of the effectiveness of the work that I've been doing is just just making connections and just um, finding talent and like cultivating that and building people to then, you know, take this work further. Where um, where would you say your work ethic comes from? Is that something you've had your whole life, that kind of focus and ability to just crank through things efficiently? Or is that something you've had to develop over time? I think it's gotten home. It's been honed, um, definitely. But I think as a kid, I definitely would get, um, incredibly obsessive, I guess, and focused on stuff. I, I used to play with Legos a lot for like hours at a time. And, um, I would have these, you know, big projects, but, um, you know, I think, I think one of the things that, uh, is in, I've seen this happen. I've done this on mountains before. Like if it starts getting really painful, <laughs> you know, I can't think straight. It's just setting small goals Yes. and just being able to like tick off even the smallest thing. Like I'm going to send this email to so-and-so or, you know, I'm going to do that. Like having that on the to-do list, it's like a, uh, it's kind of, I almost feel like it's a, a little bit of hot wiring my uh, reward system in my brain. <laughs> but, Whatever works. I mean, it's obviously working. I, I think about that. All, I, I do the mountain climbing analogy all the time. And I think about, you know, when you're climbing a mountain, you don't want to just keep looking at the summit. You look up maybe yeah. every so often, then you worry about this step, next step, next step, then make sure. You, and that, that breaking down in small task allows me to build momentum, which eventually leads to getting at least a little bit of stuff done. I know, especially in, in, in especially in climbing a mountain. I we just we just um, went up um, Humphreys Peak here in Arizona. It's all it's called Docoas Lead in Navajo. It's the it's the only alpine mountain in Arizona. It's like twelve six. Mm-hmm. Um, we went up with a um, Patagonia snowboarder named Forrest Shear, and I I just I didn't sleep very well the the night before, and I kind of I didn't hydrate properly so i was really just not doing well on the mountain i remember it was just looking at a rock you know 10 feet ahead of like, i'm just gonna get to that <laughs> it was like 60 mile an hour winds too so it was just it was uh definitely a moment of just having to yeah you're right just kind of 
little steps at a time and building momentum. And we made it down, thankfully. But <laughs> it's funny when you get home from these mountain climbing trips, how the kind of the most intense and at the time most mem- uh, miserable part of it ends up being the most memorable. And it's what you, <laughs> you don't remember the fun stuff is or like the, the quote fun stuff. But when you really get your ass kicked, that those are some of the best memories, really. And that's hard for people who don't do it to understand. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a form of masochism. <laughs> <laughs> it really is, man. Um, well, I, I'm always asking for book recommendations on this podcast, mainly completely selfishly for myself. But if you had to pick a few of your favorite books about Native American culture that you feel like are mu- must reads for Americans. Or do any do any come to mind that you feel like every everybody could benefit a lot from reading? There's a there's I think just general history. There's a book called An Indigenous People's History of the United States by Dunbar Ortiz, Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz, I think. Yes, um, that's a good one. Um, it's just kind of providing a, another lens on history. Um, one specific to the Navajo that I read a while ago that was really cool was it was called. Um, uh, West of the thirties mm-hmm. and it was by Edward T. Hall. Um, but it was his time out on the Navajo and Hopi res in the 1930s. Um, it was just a really kind of cool, uh, vignette of that community, but also just, um, uh, yeah, it was, I don't know. It's just a neat little book that I read a little while ago. Cool. I've, um, I've got the first one on my shelf. I've yet to read it. And then I had not heard of the second one. So those are, those are perfect. Um, I was going to say the last one I'm reading right now is called, um, firecracker boys. I haven't Uh, heard that either. Cool. uh, It's about, uh, it's a pretty dark book, but it was about some nuclear testing that they were doing in Northern Alaska that impacted a bunch of native communities. Um, but they were effectively what was, what was being planned in, in Alaska by uh, somewhere like near Nome is that they were going to build a large inland port somewhere up there. And um, they were going to use nuclear bombs to make, to basically blow up, to make this Harbor. Um, and it didn't, it actually didn't end up happening, but they, they took some Nevada test dirt and buried it up there to see what the effects would be on traditional foods to basically see how to render indigenous people like ineffective because of this nuclear waste It's really dark history, but it's also an important piece. I think in looking at, um, yeah, just kind of our recent history and some of the things that are going on, but it's, it's a neat book. It kind of gives a context of the nuclear arms race in Alaska and how that affected it there. So. Cool. And I'll have links for people listening, go to the webpage and you can click through to, to see all these books. Um, well, I've got a set of questions that I ask everybody I have on the podcast, and it's pretty cool to compare the answers. So maybe we can run through those, and then I'll let you get back to your 50 different jobs. <laughs> um, you may have just answered this but um, with, that, with that last list of books, but what would you say are your favorite books about the American West in general? Uh, let's see. I've been a fan of Cormac McCarthy's work. That comes up over and over yeah. and over. It's, it's, it's amazing how consistent that is. That's so cool. Um, I mean, that's just been a really good one. Uh, the other is uh, uh, Hampton Sides, his work. He's been on the podcast um, twice. Yep, I, I saw that. Yeah, his Blood and Thunder was a fun book, fun read. And um, I'm trying to think of what else I've read of his. Uh, 
yeah, those were the that was the one that I, that kind of stuck with me. But I I really enjoyed that writing, and then also. Um, actually a really good book that I read was, um, house of rain by Craig Childs. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've heard of that. I haven't read it though. Yeah. It was a cool, um, I, I think it, it, it was very engaging for me because I know a lot of those places that he was going. And so it was nice to kind of fill in the history and stories behind these places and his sort of, uh, journey to look at, you know, the ancestral Puebloans and, and their connection in the Southwest. Because that's an ever-present thing. If you're ever in, you know, the Four Corners is the Anasazi, or well, ancestral Puebloan people that live there. Cool. Those are all good ones. Um, do you have any favorite documentaries or films? Oof. Um, documentaries or films? <laughs> I'm uh, I'm partial to Free Solo because I just watched that recently. <laughs> I haven't seen it yet. I watched Dawn Wall the other day, and yeah. is free? Is it just unreal? It's just, I, I think what's so amazing, I mean, it's, I, the New York Times called it the greatest human achievement in, in human history, which, or something like that, modern history, which I can't disagree with. Um, but I think it's, you know, I think one of the things that I just haven't been a fan of with a lot of climbing movies is that it doesn't give like sort of the backstory of people or, you know, kind of humanizes people. It's about the climb. And I think what, um, um, Chai and Jimmy did the, who directed that. I mean, they really did a phenomenal job on, um, really providing the human element of this particular story. I can't um, wait to see it. I might watch it this weekend. Yeah, you totally should. It's, it's worth your time. <laughs> um, so in all your outdoor adventures all over the place, big mountains, deserts, is there one experience that sticks out in your mind as being, the most powerful experience you've had. And that could mean scary. It can mean funny. Um, just a extremely powerful outdoor experience. I have to go through the Rolodex a little bit. <laughs> it's hard to pick, you know, and you've done a lot of cool yeah. stuff. I'm actually going to be climbing a peak this weekend called Babo Kibri, um, which is down here in Arizona. It's a sacred peak to the Ton Octum. Um, but it's a, like a five, four or five pitch climb. Um, that's going to be cool. And I think that'll be a really cool experience, but I think more recently about climbing, um, I was out at, um, Kochi stronghold back in November and we climbed up a, um, five, eight route, um, up this dome. And the thing about Kochi stronghold is that it's very high commitment climbing. I mean, there's places where it's 30 feet between bolts and stuff, like that, you know, just, I mean, just really, it gets in your head. And so these things that on paper are like moderate climbs are actually mentally pretty challenging. But we we climbed up this five-pitcher called Euphoria, and um, there's a ledge right before the last pitch that's, you know, 700 feet off the deck. And we, we uh, uh, kind of meandered our way up there, and then we spent the night on that ledge. Um, and I, well, I didn't really sleep. I was having nightmares that the ledge was going to crumble off. And all <laughs> Understandable. <laughs> um, but waking up the next morning and just being able to see that ledge, it was phenomenal. I mean, just see the valley below. That was one that stuck with me. And then the other more recent is I do a lot of like skiing is kind of my, um, strong point. I generally let other people lead climb for me, but, um, uh, I, on that trip we did to Dokos lead and, or Humphreys peak, um, 
we um we had just phenomenal conditions because in Arizona or in Arizona, the snowpack there is about 160% of average right now. Wow. So it's, it's really deep. And we had, um, uh, about 3000 feet of fresh powder all the way down. Cause it had been sitting under the, it had been sitting under the clouds for a day and we, um, yeah, just went off the summit and just had this wonderful ride down. And I, I, I don't know if it'll ever happen again. Um, with that much snow, but I think it'll, it'll definitely be one that'll stick in the memory when there's no snow on that mountain 50 years from now. (laughs) That's a whole, whole different story. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, those are great. Um, if you had to pick one and this is hard, can you name your favorite location in the West? Could be a mountaintop, a trail, a town, a certain park. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, uh, uh, the Sangre de Cristos and Blanca Peak. I mean, just the prominence of those mountains and just their, uh, they're intense, you know, I think in terms of that, I think the other place that sticks with me is, um, uh, the Wallawa mountains in um, North, Northeast Oregon. Mm-hmm. Like that's been a really cool place. I spent a little bit of time that I really want to get back to. I've never been there. I've, I've, I've spent a bunch of time in the Sangres, but never, um, that part of Oregon, but I've heard it's, it's pretty unreal. Um, yeah. I'm going to tell everyone now it's terrible. Though, yeah. Never mind. It's awful. <laughs> you don't want to go there. Um, so two more questions. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? I, I think one of them I got from my great aunt and she told me that, um, you know, if I ever want to do work to help people, I need to be in a good place myself. Yeah. Um, and that's always been that's stuck with me. And I, you know, I think the way I've taken that to heart is just making sure that um, I do stuff outside and stuff that I enjoy and like keeps me um, happy. And that's been a big that's been a big piece of um, I think my success is just also taking care of myself. And um, yeah, I do work a lot, but also like I do a ton of stuff outdoors. And um, I realize that even just that. 20, 30 minutes of just taking time outside and doing something that clears my mind often makes my work more effective. And like, I can, um, yeah, be much more, um, efficient and sort of and clear headed about the things I'm doing. Yeah, I agree. The the whole reason I exercise is just for that purpose. Exactly. Just to, for the mental clarity. I mean, I, I like it and I enjoy it and I love being outdoors, but there's so much more to it than that. Um, it fuels everything else. Totally. So last big question, if you could make a request of the people that listen to this podcast and as people that love the American West in one way or the other, whether that's through outdoor recreation or ranching or conservation or art, um, if you could either offer some words of wisdom or ask them to do something, is there anything that comes to mind? Um, I think, you know, we're in, in any place that we go and recreate, I think just doing the due diligence of, you know, if you want to, if you're learning the trail or route or whatever, like learn about the indigenous people that pl- call that place home. Um, and I think that's uh, a quick Google search away. But it also, I, it really adds depth to that experience because, you know, a lot of this outdoor adventuring, um, people have been doing it for thousands of years. <laughs> yep. So. Uh, and I think just in being a part of that story, I think is incredibly valuable and adds meaning to that work. That's awesome. So how can people connect with you online? Uh, social media. Um, that's the best way. My 
uh, Instagram is kind of where I hang out quite a bit. Uh, it's kind of what the people my age and younger are using as a platform. So Len Nessifer is my handle, and then Natives Outdoors is the company's. Um, and those are the, I would say the easiest way to see my work and, um, connect with me as well. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to do this. This is very, uh, inspiring and educational. I really appreciate it. Keep up the good work. Yeah. Thanks, Ed. Appreciate it. Look forward to seeing you in September. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.